Welcome to Beyond the Frontline Podcast, where your hosts, U.S. Air Force veterans, Donna Hoffmeyer and Jay Johnson will help you transition from the front line to the home front. Listen every other Wednesday as they will bring great conversations, resources, tips, and feel-good stories that will resonate and relate. Now, here's your hosts, Donna Hoffmeyer and Jay Johnson. All right, everybody. This is Beyond the Front Line, and you're here with me today, Donna Hoffmeyer, and I am bringing on a very special guest. I actually met him on a golf course, like no kidding. Um, his house is on a golf course, and I was out helping doing a golf event uh, for raising money for a veteran nonprofit, and I'm sitting on the 12th hole, and I'm looking over at this house, and I'm like, I love the house. The color is this really cool blue, and I was really just admiring it. And I, like 20 minutes later, this really cute young lady comes bopping out, and she's like, hi, I'm Caitlin. And I was like, hey. And I'm like, I love your house. And I said, and then it was like this immediate friendship. And then I found all about what she and her husband are doing, and I was like, hey, we all need to talk. And so I was able to wrangle her husband, who is Major Teddy Colgate. He is a retired United States Marine Corps. And Teddy um, has this amazing nonprofit called Heroes Outreach. And that's what we're going to talk about today is all about Teddy, where he started, where he went, what he saw and what led them to starting Heroes Outreach. And Heroes Outreach has been around, if I am not mistaken, for close to 13 years around there. So I'm going to give you a very short background about Teddy. Very short, because I'm going to let him tell his story. But he retired um, after 22 years in the Marines. Um, he was airborne, jump school. Uh, he went to the sands of Saudi Arabia for Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, the liberation of Kuwait. Um, he went on, and he's one of those special Marines. I'm teasing him a little because he got educated, and he's got a Bachelor of Science degree in 1999. And then he decided... I'm going to go back into the Marines and I'm going to finish my career. Well, actually, Teddy, am I correct? Did you do your education while you were in the Marines or did you step out? I did. I stayed active duty the whole time and just went to night school and uh, went to college classes during lunchtime and things like that. So anything that would give me a college credit, I, I tried to do during a short period of time. Ah, yeah. So he went on and he was one of those that crossed over, came to the dark side, became an officer. And I said in 2012, he retired as a major. Um, he was a White House liaison. He was coordinating Marine One presidential helicopter. He was overseas in like half the countries, Okinawa, Germany, Korea. Um, and he has lots of tour duties in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then he came out and eventually started first heroes outreach and that is just a very brief summary teddy you probably could write a book because i was looking at your bio and i was like holy crap if i read the whole thing i just told the whole story so everybody i want you guys to welcome teddy welcome welcome well, thank you very much and thank you for having me i think it's uh it's always an honor to uh, join someone in an, an adventure if you will and uh, I, I find that those special people that run podcasts or start podcasts, I think they have a, a unique uh, storytelling ability. So uh, thank you whole 
Harley for uh, inviting us on to share our stories. I like talking. That's what happened. And I, I'm going to tell you, I, I never, ever, ever had podcast on my radar ever. I'm a nurse by trade, retired Air Force nurse. Yeah. And and was broached uh, and said, we really think you'd be good for a podcast. And I laughed at him. I was like, that's funny. Um, but they apparently thought I was good. And they probably just kept hearing me motor mouth. And they're like, no, really, you'd be good. <laughs> Put your talk into work. I'm like, okay. And here we are, right? So, um, all right. So this is where I want to start with everything. Your story is long and extensive, and you're probably one of the most humble guys that I've met. Um, it was fun because I actually didn't meet you on the golf course. I met Caitlin, and Caitlin was just, like, chirping away about, oh, yeah, we came from Florida, and this is what we're doing. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And then we just started – uh, chirp, chirping away. And then I had a friend there, uh, Jessica, Caitlin, as she was saying everything that was going on, Jessica goes, careful what you tell Donna, she'll plug you into stuff before you know it. <laughs> and I was like, mm -hmm, yep, I was thinking of all these things we could do. So where did you go? Where'd you start? Let's just kind of get into your story. Um, and where you Quickly, where you grew up, what got you into the Marines, and just these pivotal transition points that got you in and, and through the Marines. My grandfather was a World War II Marine uh, and a huge influence uh, in my life. So after high school, I kind of uh, sat around for a short period of time and then just figured, you know what, it's time to do something. And I just went down to the Marine recruiter's office. And it was that simple. It was it wasn't like sell me, you know, what do you have to offer? It was how quickly can I go? And um, within, I guess, a short two two and a half months, I was in the Marine Corps. So um, that was wow. in ninety January January of nineteen ninety. So uh, less than a year in from there, I went to jump school. Uh, I was with Second Anglico Air Naval uh, Gunfire Liaison Company uh, out of Camp Lejeune. And we were in the, the desert, uh, you know, huge conflict, big issue uh, in the world that the world hadn't seen in, in some time. And uh, here I am, a 19-year-old kid, ready to save the world and, and you know, chew on concertina wire and, and you know, all those, all those war-isms that you, you hear about and you read about. Um, you know, I was 19 years old and I was full of it. I was ready to, to do everything. And, it's romantic, yeah. Well, problem was, you know, the Gulf War was 100, 100 hours, basically. Right. And uh, so there was a lot of lot of folks that were like, well, shoot, you know, but that was that was not what I intended, you know. So but uh, we did our job, did it well and came back. And I was still full of this, uh, you know, motivation and things like that. So I uh, worked the, the next six months or so and I got myself meritoriously promoted to corporal. And then I had orders to go up to HMX one, which is the Marine uh, Marine one, uh, you know, the presidential helicopter squad. How old were you at that point? At that point, I didn't even know what that was. Uh, all I knew was I was jumping. I was nineteen. Mm. So, uh, and I I think I had just turned twenty actually. So, but where I was, you know, I was in the field all the time. I was jumping out of helicopters. I was living a good life. I didn't want to go anywhere. And my uh, my boss came up to me and he says, yeah, hey, sport, you know, you don't have a choice when this command 
comes down and says, you're the guy, you are the guy. So again, 20 years old, didn't know what that meant. So I get up to HMX and, you know, within a short few months, I have, you know, super high security clearance. I'm working in the White House liaison office, um, back and forth to DC from Quantico and, and just, uh, what I would consider living my best life at that point, because now I'm 21 and, and I'm traveling, I'm doing all these cool things. And I'm like, this, this Marine Corps stuff is great. You know, um, no education whatsoever. Uh, but all these opportunities were in front of me and it was just, uh, it was just amazing. So I had a lot of early on in my career, I had a lot of cool things, um, thrown at me that I feel like I excelled at and guys wanted me around to do certain jobs. So it was, uh, it was nice. And then at that point, um, the got orders to Okinawa. And that's when I decided, cause I was going to get out of the Marine Corps, um, from HMX. I had a bunch of buddies that were secret service agents and I was going to get out. And then that way I could, you know, go into secret service and things like that, but I didn't have my degree. And the option was I could become a uniform uh, secret service agent, um, or get my degree, you know, and figure it out. So I re-enlisted for the sole fact to commit to getting my degree. So I went to Okinawa, got a four year degree in two and a half years, left there, was getting out of the Marine Corps again. And my boss said, Hey, I filled out this, you know, package. Why don't you finish it up and then we'll submit it. And I didn't know what that was really at the time, but it was a commissioning package. So did all the legwork for that, submitted a commissioning package, left Okinawa and went to Quantico and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. So and how old were you when you commissioned? The, I was 27, 27 or 28. That's pretty good. About. I've seen him. I was right on the cuff. I've seen the people that have done, you know, they've made up to senior enlisted and then they're like, I'm going to cross over. And I'm like, God bless you. <laughs> they go from first sergeant, senior guy to second lieutenant. That's a, that's a total mind uh, mess with your head quite a bit. <laughs> we did have a, uh, a guy, he was a uh, gunnery sergeant. So E7, um, but he had went out to MESEP, which is the, you know, you go to school full-time. That's, that's your job. You're, you do, you know, the reserve type thing, but you're actually yeah. going to school. He had went out to MESEP as a corporal and was non-competitively promoted to sergeant, staff sergeant, and then selected for gunnery sergeant um, while he was in school. Mm -hmm. So, wow. you know, the last time he left the Marine Corps was, you know, a corporal, and now he's basically a gunnery sergeant and now he's getting ready to be commissioned so his his experience is not commensurate with his rank yeah you know so but for me it was uh full active duty i was selected for staff sergeant the same summer i was commissioned um that's pretty equivalent so. crossover i mean i would you know up to that point yeah i think that's not too bad you know for the the equalness of crossing over because it is it's just a mental shift where um 
Were you seeing anything at that time? I'm kind of kind of tie it into what you ended up doing out of the military. Were you seeing anything at that time? Like, what was your degree in? You said a Bachelor of Science, but what was the... So psychology and education. So you were already psychology. I mean, that's interesting that, that you picked that really early on. Was what influenced that decision? Well, unfortunately, it was one of those where that um, I felt that was the easiest route uh, to, to my degree uh, with those two things because I could I could use the personal side of things um, and I'm not going to say BS my way through school, but <laughs> you know with with sociology, psychology, things like that, there are, there are a lot of touchy feely uh, things that uh, are interpretive in nature. I bet so, that worked well with the Marines. <laughs> well, it was uh, I. I never really let anyone into the fact that I had a psychology degree. Probably smart. I had, a, had an innate ability to be able to, um, you know, outthink most people. So, which was fantastic. And uh, so, it was just one of those things where I had I had a lot of fun when I was commissioned. Uh, I had ten years in and. I had a lot of fun being the, the new lieutenant uh, because I would I would I would play that role, um, you know, for my humor, and uh, and then when it got down to business, these these guys knew that they 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 have the guy that's going to take them and, and bring them back. So um, we had we the Marine Corps was just a fun time for me, um, and then of course you go into um, you know September 11th and things like that, and I distinctly remember where I was during that that time frame because we were getting we're at Lejeune and we were getting ready to work up, and you know everything happened and you know we were one of the communists that potentially uh, were were headed to D.C. or into uh, New York if if um, communication had ceased because we could provide that. Uh, that service like satellite yeah yeah so yeah so we were uh we were a satellite uh transmission unit and uh you know we could we could pretty much create AT&T-esque services anywhere in the world you know yeah so, so you were was, where were you for September 11th where were you stationed at that time Camp Lejeune Camp so Lejeune yeah, I was with 8th Comm Battalion uh, in Camp Lejeune. Oh, yeah. I was actually at Ramstein. I was a flight nurse at the time. And okay. uh, I remember um, our our chief nurse called us down to the theater patient movement center and said, you know, because we always had TVs on, right? We, like you guys probably did. We always had all the news stations going. So we kind of knew kind of what was going on in the world. And uh, somebody was like, uh, somebody hit the tower, like one of the twin towers into my head. <laughs> I was like, how the hell could they not see that freaking big old building right there? Like, that makes no sense. And no sooner that thought went through my head, somebody came from another room looking at, it was another news station had a different angle, and they saw a plane hit the second tower, and then all of us were dead. We knew. We knew at that moment what had happened. Like, not details, but we knew that this was a terrorist attack. And so we're like, holy crap. And, of course, then we all went on alert, and you know all the stuff that you, you know. Everybody goes on alert and figuring it all out. Now, we were overseas, so um, we actually experienced a lot of uh, hate crimes 
Um, we had people coming through our neighborhoods, um, K-Town. There, uh, I wasn't in Kaiserslautern. I was in another town that was actually all German. So I was actually safer than most people. But yeah. K-Town had, um, I, some of the pilots were saying like, yeah, there's like white vans with no license plates driving through the neighborhood all of a sudden. Um, when I got stationed in England, I was talking to some of my patients there. And this lady was telling me during that time, there were people driving head on. Because, you know, you can tell... For the civilian audience that doesn't know this, when at the time, I don't know what it is now, but when you had a license plate overseas on your American car, it, it was like target practice. It said USA right down the side of it. It was like we all hated it. Um, and so they would uh, target them. And one lady said I had somebody drive head on. I had to drive into a ditch. My car rolled over. Yeah. So there was a lot of that going on um overseas that i don't think a lot of people really realized but um yeah it, it was all we were all there kind of waiting listening to our counterparts in the states waiting for a call what we had to do but all of us just sat alert and you know not much yeah. to do i think i think the the overseas folks i think they get they get missed a lot of times like you said because uh -huh. the the threat you know it's it's almost like you're you're by yourself uh -huh. You have your your little pod, and if uh, you know if hell shows up at your doorstep, I mean, you look around, and that's what you have. And I think uh, mindset-wise, for us being deployed so many times, that's how we approach everything. Right. And and I think even today, when I go out and I do things, that's I look around, and that's what I have. I I don't rely on anyone else. I I that I, that I don't bring with me. Yeah. And I think that's a mindset focus that you you only get that through trauma and that so many times. That's a profound statement that you just said. You only get that through trauma. And you know, I've said before, everybody that has gone in the military has been traumatized, which sounds horrible, right? But it is also what makes us able to perform duties that other people couldn't do. Um, and, and that is just a fact. If, you know, the sad reality is if you are coming in the military or your kids are going in the military or whatever, there will be some level of trauma. Why? Because if we don't put that on you, we can't teach you how to respond. Um, and when those situations come up, which are traumatic, you're not going to know what to do, or you're going to get in those situations unexpectedly and you got to respond. Right. So it, it's simple statement, but it's kind of profound. And it, it goes back to training. And for us, we, we always did, um, emergency action plans. I'm sure you did them at the hospital. Oh yes. You know, trauma drills and things like that. It's like, you can train all these things, but if it's not muscle memory, yes. And as soon as shit hits the fan, you know, there's there's always the one or two guys that or gals that that are like, what now? What do we do? You know, and they don't have that ability to just kick in. And yep. I was super thankful that I was always trained, equipped, and what I felt ready. And I did the same for my guys. Is that, you know, we we anticipated the old shit moments, and 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 really we wanted those because we felt we were better prepared than the next guy. And that's it's weird to say that, you know, 
sitting here in, in, uh, in a collared shirt and, and everything else. But, right. but I still feel that way. I, I still feel when I go to the grocery store that I am better prepared than 99% of the people in there if something happens. Yeah, you're and, always scanning. I, it, it's a habit for me now. When I go into uh, restaurants, if I'm with military buddies, and I know that they've like struggled with like PTSD or, you know, whatnot. I will actually just say, where do you want to sit? Cause I'm okay with my back to the door. If they're that way, you know, and they're watching, I'm like, I'm good. It, it doesn't really phase me. But if I'm with other people that are non-military or I don't know where their level is, I will pick the door where I can kind of you know, I'm not, I, I don't get too gitchy. I'm not really that, but I do like to kind of have some essay on, on what's going on. But typically when I'm with my military buddies, I don't have to worry about that. They're scanning. Like I'm so used to talking to people that scan across the room. I'm just like, yep, gotcha. You know, they're like, sorry. I'm like, no, we're good. We're good. I know what you're doing. <laughs> and I, I still do it. Uh, I'm not as, um, I'm not as obvious now as I was 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I think, I think that's twofold really it's, it's coping skills. Um, but it's also just, you know, easing myself and those around me, uh, that I try to limit my places that I'm in, but I, I assess every single person that I encounter. Yeah. And we assess where we go. Like I am so not a fan of crowds. I mean, my kids did not, grow up at Six Flags and all those other places. We went to Disney once. I was like, yeah, that, that was fun. I could not do that again. And, you know, I see this commercial. It's like, it's the most magical place on earth. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> that's not the word I was thinking of, right? And again, it's because of our training, right? Like that many people in a space, too many thoughts and I, I don't actually even think them. I just know that it's too many thoughts, you know, and I, and I like, I'm like you, I'm like, I don't want to put that on my kids. I don't want to make them afraid or anything like that. So we do, we do go to that stuff. Um, but I am much happier when my friends say, Hey, can we take the kids to six flags? You sure can. <laughs> do I have to go? <laughs> it's totally understandable. And I, I think, um, for me, Again, going back to mindset and, and trying to stay on a timeline of sorts. Um, so I was deployed in 2001, 2002, 2003, 2007, 2008, 2009, and 2010. And the three years, um, three or four, five, six, I was actually at Paris Island training recruit. So, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, breathing room in any of that. But the experience that I had each time I was able to grow, um, I feel more confident every time um, that, I, that I deploy. And my last two deployments, I literally went into the, to the 06, the Colonel, uh, and I, I almost handpicked my guys uh, for, that, for that mission, which was, you know, ideal in any situation and everybody would love to do be able to do that right i was i was thankful that i i got the opportunity to grab you know at least you know my top tier guys that i knew i i could count on hands down and one 
replaced me during uh, a, a deployment. And then we just um, kept in touch and things like that. And I really liked how he operated. So when we had the opportunity to go into Afghanistan on short notice, you know, I called him up and I said, you know, is this something you want to do? And he's like, he's like, absolutely. You know, if, if, uh, if you're the guy I'm, I'm going and, uh, you know, so those types of things make it all worth it. Uh, the long days, the long hours, the time of being gone, uh, you know, the stress of all of it. But when you have guys that you feel are top quality and they feel the same about you, then, then you know that you've gone down that path the right way. So Yes. I think the biggest compliment any that any military person or veteran could hear is I would go to battle with you. That that is the epitome that is the compliment that a military person wants to hear. That I trust you. I would go to battle with you. Or I'd go to battle under you or whatever it is. Or I'd pick you to go to battle in any component like that. I think that's probably the pinnacle compliment that a person could the, receive the only one i would maybe challenge and this happened to me uh, you know i think it was like 10 o'clock at night and we're getting ready to get on buses to head out uh, in 09 and i had a young kid he was a he was a corporal brand new corporal and his parents were were down visiting and he said you know Thank you for taking care of my son. Uh, yeah. yeah, that'll get you there, right too. That that's uh that's right up there. Yeah. yeah. That's one of those uh you know, I mean, you don't talk about pressure. I was that's, just gonna say it's kind of bittersweet, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's like holy crap, you know. No pressure, my guy. It's a reality slap, yeah. You know, but but again, I I always told told my folks that, listen, you know, I'm trusted to take care of you. That's it. So you may not like what, what we're going to do and you may not like how we're going to do it, but I will always train and equip you to do what we're supposed to do. And, uh, by, by and large, we were pretty fortunate. So, so this is going on. So you just rattled off half your career's deployments and then the other half is training, right? I mean, that is, that's your life, right? So... I know that if I had met you in that period, the word that would come to me would be like intense, right? You are zero in, laser focused. I definitely would want you on my side, not against me. <laughs> but what now that these deployments are happening and you're going and you're coming back and you have a psychology degree that nobody knows about, what are you watching what is happening to you and how are you handling all of it? Because you're all changing now, right? You're getting older, wiser, unfortunately, more experienced, fortunately, more experienced, however you want to look at that. Um, that trauma is happening. That is what has helping shape you. How is this all getting handled when it's getting too much? In 09, um, TBI was, was kind of starting to become a, a buzzword and um, I was adamant that my unit would do pre-deployment TBI testing. And we were one of the few units at that point that, you know, I mean, it was an option, but we were, everyone's doing it, you know, and we did, you know, the scans and the tests and the, and the you know, the worksheets and everything else. Right. 
All that stuff, all that stuff goes in the file cabinet somewhere. Wasn't that the anum? Is that what that it was called? The anums or something like that? that? Yeah, it could have been. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but mm -hmm. then we deploy, come back, and we, we do the post screening. Well, in October of 19, no, I'm sorry, of October of 09, I was in an LAV that got smashed and, you know, went black out for however long. And um, I knew something was not right. So uh, I literally slept for two days, you know, uh, didn't go to the aid station or nothing like that. I had my doc on scene, check me out, you know, and, and uh, but I was not okay, not okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember my first sergeant because I had claps in his lap and um, he says, you know, sir, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, you know, and, uh, but he had asked me that, you know, five or six times, you know, I only heard the last time because I was, you know, coming to. And then he says, can you move? And I said, of course I can move, you know. Well, I thought I was moving, but I wasn't moving, you know. Oh, so wow. here I'm all claps on this guy's, um, on his lap in the back of a, uh, a C7 variant LAV. And uh, so, you know, I finally, you know, shake it off and we climb out and, you know, you good? I was like, of course I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a major at this point. I'm always good. Always good. Know? That's but, right. That's the uh, answer. So, so we actually cross deck from uh, the LEVs and, and we jumped on a helo and we flew back. Um, and then we got back to our, our site and I just hit the rack and, you know, I'm literally slept for a couple of days, which probably looking back was not the smartest thing to do. <laughs> I understand. It wasn't. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, my guys were checking on me nonstop and, and things like that. And uh, so, you know, three days later, so cobwebs came out, whatever. So fast forward, and now we're coming home and we're doing our uh, post-appointment assessment. And, you know, the last question of it says, do you want to talk to a provider? You know, yes, yes, I do. So a couple of days later, I talked to the provider and she's like, what seems to be the problem? I said, well, there's something going on. I don't know what it is, but I know it's something. I said, you know, can you look at my sheet? She's like, oh, of course. You know, so she does my post deployment sheet and she's looking at it. She's like, everything looks good. You know, you're you're at the high end of the average or, you know, some above average and stuff like that. I said, how does that compare to my pre-deployment? And she's like, well, we didn't compare them because your scores are, are normal. Stop right said, there. Stop right there. I, I, let me tell you, you I am oh, not going to rabbit hole on this, but holy crap. High functioning people that get injured, they do not get picked up. I am. I have seen it. I have ha I've taken care of these patients. I had one, this gentleman in Colorado, and he's like, ma'am, I the same thing you said, it is not right. I am not right. I said, what you don't understand is your half functioning is somebody else's high functioning. So sorry, like that just, as soon as you said it, I'm like, oh yes, big gap there. So go ahead, sorry. So kind of took my lost away, but um, <laughs> man, I need you to compare. So 
she leaves. She takes my form. She leaves. Comes back, and I'm I'm in this room thinking that you know I'm I'm freaking crazy, right? Like you know, she comes back. Five doctors, five of them, and they all sit around. And she says, uh, "Sir, I am so sorry." And uh, it was one of those moments where I realized that I wasn't crazy for being so irritable and so pissed off at everybody or myself because I couldn't, you know, do the things that I could do. And the, and the problem, like you said, if you just met me, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm great guy, you know, and, and everything else. And man, you're smart as a whip and all these things inside my head, inside my, my heart, all these things that don't connect. I was losing my mind. Yeah, I was legitimately losing my mind and I was so frustrated at everything and everyone. And uh, and it was because I could not. My brain was either either processing faster than my mouth or vice versa or not as not as fast and not in sync. And finally, you know, with all the testing, they're like, yeah, you you have a moderate TBI, which for a. Say and going an average guy going in would almost be debilitating. Yeah. But with your level and your focus, it's like you 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 present okay. And uh, but that was the first time in in a couple of years that I had just had a almost a, a an awakening of like okay, now how do we get to where my best life is, or how do we fix the quality of life that I've been struggling with for a year, you know? So it was huge. And, um, and that was, uh, probably summer, summer of 2010 hmm. was when, uh, was when that was like laid out in front of me, like, okay, Hey, you're not, you're not crazy. You know, there is something and it's not, for a guy like you, it's not going to be debilitating. It, it may be limiting at times, but, you know, recognizing, understanding, um, identifying those certain things, at least I have something that I can point at and say, okay, this is why now, what do we do now? What do we do now? Right. How do we move forward? So how, how did you move forward? Like, what were the modalities that you ended up using to come back well um there was there was just a at that time there was a, just a lack of understanding and appreciation for tbi mm -hmm. and and the reason and, and i say that in the sense that if you're functioning with a tbi then it, it's not functioning with a tbi it's just functioning and if you're non-functioning with the tbi then you're getting the highest level of care available, right? So there was a huge gap, um, and you couldn't you couldn't bridge that when you were on active duty. You couldn't um, you couldn't keep jumping up and down saying, "Hey, I need help! I need help!" Because all you're going to do is get sit on the bench, right? And nobody wants to deal with you until your time is up, right? And and I say that term sat on the bench 
for a very specific reason, because that's kind of how First Coast Heroes Outreach came to light. And the intent was, and I'll, I'll go back, but the intent of First Coast Heroes Outreach is to keep guys and gals, veterans, active duty, first responders, firefighters, law enforcement in the fight and not on the bench. So if you have a bad call as a firefighter, we want you to have the resources available to help you while you still remain choosing and doing the service of which you have set forth to do. The worst thing you can do for a, a, a person that is engaged in their life of service is to take that away from them. Well, I want to comment on uh, something that you were just saying that it was black and white in the TBI world. So if you were functioning, you were good. And if you weren't, then you got all this care. And and the military, just so you understand, their goal is to keep as many assets going as they can. We didn't say how good, just that they can keep them going. So if you had a TBI and you were still functioning, and we'll put quotes around that, right? Because we know the outside and the inside never match. They were like, yeah, you're good, buddy. Off you go. And now in their mind, well, we still got a warm body, right? And so the commander's happy and everybody's happy and they're still doing it. So, um, and then if you're so far and you need all this help, then what they're doing is, okay, we're giving them help. Look, we're giving them help. But, and they're also helping them out the door. <laughs> they're not like, if it's too far, then we're just going to get you out the door. You know, you're right. That's where this enormous gap existed. And I probably would contend still exists right now. You know, I mean, I've been out three years, but I, I don't, I don't see a massive change, you know? Yeah, I would, I would agree. I, I think it still, it, it still exists. The, the bodies, you know, uh, yeah. um, that's, that's, you know, I, I, I think that that's one of those things where um, units want bodies to do X, Y, and Z. And when you can't do X, Y, and Z, then you, uh, you get put somewhere where nobody has to deal with you until yeah. your time expires. And when your time expires, then they, they wash their hands and they send you to a, the, the lovely VA uh, healthcare system, mm -hmm. and um, you can you can argue that it's robust and and they have all the assets available um, at the ready. S some would argue against that. Um, I have I'm about a fifty fifty guy with, yeah. the, with the VA. I get I get a lot of good things from the VA. Uh, sometimes I I have to wait longer than I care to. Uh, um, but, you know, I also have the ability to go out to other sectors as well. So, yeah, you know, that's that's one of those things where that's that's a, a totally different time, yeah. I'm guessing. But Oh, yeah, that, that's uh, a whole beast by itself. Yeah. So but the you, the gap, you just started to say, I'm sorry, you started to say the gap. And that's kind of what I guess we want to talk about now is the gap. Like you saw the gap and and. You experienced this yourself, right? Were you seeing other people experiencing the same thing? 
Were you watching this? And again, you're one up because you got the degree. You got the secret degree over there. And, and you are processing this not only on a personal level, but on a clinical level. As, as I was a company commander at the time, and then I had moved up to be acting battalion commander and dealing with this at the same time. And when I called for an appointment, I, I got the appointment. Right. You know, and basically because it was who I was or, or what I was at the time. Right. And time and again, I would hear kids that would not, you know, get the appointments because they were not available or, you know, the appointment is three months out or, or what have you. And we didn't really have the community care network that we have today, which is, is one of those good changes. However, the fact is you have kids that are saying they need help and they're not getting it. And I think to me, that is, that's the criminal level of the care that we say in the, in the military, give everything you have and everything you do, and we will take care of you. And that does not happen. Right. And that's, that's always been one of my issues. Um, you can't, you can't say it on one side and then not follow through. Mm -hmm. So for me, what I try to do was, um, uh, establish some sort of support groups, you know, internal to the unit. Um, and it didn't have, to, you didn't have to say anything and you didn't have to uh, participate. Sometimes it's just sitting in a room and this helped me a great deal was sitting in a room with 20 other guys and just looking around saying, you know what, I'm not the only one dealing with this crap and I'm not alone. They're not alone whether we said things or not, um, sometimes those group settings uh, were effective. I've also been, as soon as I retired, um, I jumped full force into uh, self-care because I could not figure out how to take care of myself. And I had uh, 20 plus years taking care of others. And now all of a sudden, all I have to do is take care of myself and I was failing miserably. Yep. And at one point during the week, I would have a psychiatry appointment, a psychologist appointment, a social worker, and I'd go to group therapy. Um, and many times I would be asked to leave group therapy because, you know, someone would start telling me or telling the group how bad it was and everything else. And I couldn't, I couldn't differentiate or compartmentalize their issue is their issue. You know, and it's no, it's not a competition. It's just an appreciation. And I've, I've adapted that mindset wholeheartedly these last five years. Yeah. Is that when I walk, when I walk into a room, there's a hundred people, hundred different problems going on. Yep. And I don't have to know what they are. I don't even have to really care what they are, but I have to appreciate that everyone's going through something. Right. So, but it's one of those, um, I just knew that I had to constantly focus on the self-care um, to try and become the best version of, of me moving forward. The, uh, but it was one of those, um, so through all of this, you know, and, and we'll, we'll skip, we'll skip the, the, the five year struggle, so to speak. Um, when we got to Jacksonville. Um, I was working for a, a, nonprofit there that was dealing with uh, misplaced veterans, uh, veterans that were either homeless or addicted, financial issues, you know, you know, rescue type type facility that housed uh, and it just 
it sort of became about money and not people. And, mm. um, you know, I, I felt like there was a, a, a miss, um, there where we had to figure out how do we take care of the people and, you know, the money will just happen. So when we first started, uh, we only wanted to talk about Marines. Uh, we only want to talk about military guys. So when we started, it was just Marines, military in general, and uh, trying to make a difference in their lives. Mm -hmm. And then when Caitlin together and her being a firefighter, you know, there are so many similarities of what they deal with that we decided to rebrand. And that's when we created First Coast Heroes Outreach um, to incorporate veterans and first responders, because I think the, the issues they have and the lack of uh, the continuity of care, you know, is, is to be highlighted because anyone that has an issue and gets sat down, like I said, on the bench, you you have placed many more obstacles than just that incident that they are struggling with. So for us at First Consumers Outreach, we try to be um, proactive, vice reactive. And that's that's one of the things where we want to get out in front of the issues because, you know, when you when you're reacting to everything, much like my situation, I knew something was wrong, you know. Well, it could have been too late, you know, but the fact is, if the doctors would have said, okay, they did the comparison right off the bat and they would have said, okay, we need to do X, Y, and Z because we see the issue and they were proactive, then maybe I, I wouldn't be, you know, 10, 12 years struggling the way I'm doing now. Nope. So you bring up a really good point. So we... I got people all the time and I knew like I used to take care of some of the special forces guys and I knew specifically when they landed, if they were calling me, especially if they called me directly, which had happened, I knew it was bad. Didn't even question it because I know that those guys and gals hold out the longest and they have internal resources, right? You have your own doc and you're, you're doing all the, the things that you can do. Uh, to put band-aids on it to try to keep it going. Um, but when they were calling me, I didn't even question it. I knew it was going to be really heavy. And it's it's interesting that all this knowledge we have, all this evidence base, and over and over it shows early intervention, the earlier you get it, the higher chance of success of a fuller recovery, whatever fuller looks like, right? Um, I had an incident where I ended up, um, long story short, it was basically I was flashing back to another scenario. So I, I ended up getting um, engaged in a ambush meeting type thing. It triggered some memories from like 25 years ago. Um, it was causing me physical reactions, like almost immediately heart rate, uh, going up, shaking, couldn't be around a certain person. I would have a physical reaction. And I, I'm not even a crier. I'm not even really that person that gets super emotional. So it was really like, what? Like you said, something's wrong. Um, the military mental health system completely failed me. That's another whole story. 
I happen to uh, be working with somebody in the civilian sector, and because they engage within a week of what happened, uh, three months down the road, I was back sitting in these meetings, not having that physical response. I mean, and it that was profound to me because I was already working with all these uh, guard and reserve people that were dealing with PTSD and whatnot, and I'm getting them a year, two years, five years, 10 years down the road, and they're just figuring out they have PTSD, they had a TBI, they had a whatever. And, and the guy that worked with me, he told me, he goes, I had neurofeedback done, which, you know, that's another whole topic, but I had that done. And he had said, if you had not had that done, Donna, you probably would have taken six months to a year minimum to kind of get to the same spot. Blew my mind, blew my mind. So that early intervention God, I wish we could focus hard on that. And and that's what I see you guys doing, because where are you trying to catch people? Um, you're trying to catch them more like at that transition point, right? Where they're going from the military to the civilian, for the military side, because I know you take care of first responders and whatnot, but it, it, across the board, it's that transition you're trying to catch them, right? Yeah, so we want, we want to, to provide a baseline that, you know, everything you're feeling as you now essentially don't have control uh, or the, every all the control that you have, the control measures are yours. Uh, a lot of guys struggle with that and gout because yes. you think about military. I know what to wear. I know when to wear. I know what to do. I have a book that tells me everything I need to do. Uh, I know when I need to be somewhere, when I don't need to be somewhere, whatever. So when you transition, you get to a point where you're like, what do I do now? So the struggle for a lot of guys up in their head is I have no purpose. I know I now have a, a skill set that is no longer valuable, you know, unless you have one of those jobs that, that you know, correlates with what, what you choose to do, because a lot of guys and gals don't want to do what they did in the military. So there, there's, a, there's a, a big gap that it's not, now what do I do? You know, what do I do if I haven't been planning for a year to exit the military? A lot of times it sneaks up on you and, and they say, hey, here's your last check or here's your your bag of, of you know, freebies. Get out. And mm -hmm. it's like, what do I do now? I had so many kids that would tell me when I'd ask them what their plan is as they were getting out. Well, I'm going to go home and I'm going to school. And I would ask two questions. Where are you going to live? And it, normally it was, well, I'm going to live with my parents for the short term, whatever. Okay. And then the next one was, have you applied for school? And 90% of them would say no. So my response was always, you're going to live with your parents for the next five years, and you're not going to go to school. Mm -hmm. Because if that was the choice that you made, and you were planning, then you would already have done that. So when you take that on the, the mental health aspect of it, if you don't have continuity of care, which we are trying to bridge that gap. Or a, that we understand the, the struggle that you're gonna have as soon as you take off that uniform and you don't wear it every single day. We understand that fact. We understand the fact that you're gonna have not so good days and we wanna limit those. And we understand the fact that there's a plethora of resources out there that you probably don't even know what it is you don't know. And yes. if you, 
So if if we can if we can create that uh, and and that like environment for them to say, you know what, if I call this this place, um, they're going to have you know nothing's cookie cutter as you as you well know, but they're going to have you know the the seventy five percent solution that's probably going to get them through the next six months or next year until they find a purpose or they find a direction, they find the will to do whatever it is they choose to do at this point and not what someone's telling them to do or, or more importantly, what they have to do just to survive. So the, so heroes outreach that, that focus is on that transition. Um, I have a couple of thoughts here in that. So you, that you specifically provide um, free mental health care through transition. It's what, 11 or 15 sessions, right? That they can get with a therapist and do telehealth. Right. Right, which is cool, really cool. Yes, what we try to do is uh, put them, put the the member with a provider and then we, we step out of the way and then a provider lets us know, you know, how much the bill is and then we take care of that bill. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and and the reason we do it that way is is one we don't want we don't want the liability for for any of it. Uh, and and I and I I say that in just like not like you know we're we're running away from liability, but there's certain things that that we're not trained to do. Uh, we're not going to get trained to do. We want to be a platform to be able to provide proactive um, resources to the members that need them. Yeah. So if we can do that at, you know, five cents on the dollar, which is basically where we're at, um, you know, that's that's the best way to to do that. And then the other huge platform that we're we're instilling now is legitimately providing wellness retreats for folks that are transitioning to be able to say, okay, these are all the things that are available in your area. And, you know, a lot of them are no or low cost to, to military or veteran. Mm-hmm. So Caitlin and I were talking about it the other day. Yep. The self-care portion um, is what I have personally taken on uh, as, as the test subject, so to speak, because <laughs> it's what I've dealt with in the last, the last 10 years. And, yeah. you know, full disclosure, April 16th, 2016, I put a 45 in my mouth. And had uh, Josh not come around, he's 11 now, had he not come around and asked for juice, you know, this we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. You know, so, so everything I do, uh, you know, I value self-care because no one's going to care about you more than yourself. You know, and we can say all these things like, oh, such and such doesn't care. Such and such. No, they care, but they care about themselves first and foremost, or they care about, you know, who relies on them first and foremost. If you do not care about yourself and you don't do the things that are actively going to change your outlook and change your quality of life, nobody else is going to give a shit. So you have, yes, and you have to value that is such a foreign concept to military people. And we are, I've said this many times because actually I do coaching and this is part of it's the same exact thought process of what you have, Teddy, which is we are really good 
at navigating the military. We know how to dodge things, whether it's a bullet, whether it's a commander, whether it's a subordinate we don't want to deal with, whatever it is, we know how to navigate around, right? We know how to get things done. We know where to go, right? Nothing happens in the formal process. We know where to handshake. We know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the running joke in uh, medical when they deploy is the MSCs are nearly not as effective as the nurses are because everybody knows who picks the bullet out of their ass, right? It's not the MSC, right? So the nurses can go get everything. And we know all that stuff, right? What we don't know is how to navigate us. We do not have our own intuitiveness about ourselves um, and what we really like because we've been told what we like. We've been told what we're doing. We've got dunked into the deep end of the tar pit more times than not. Oh, there's nobody there to do it? Oh, hey, you. We all know that when the compliments start coming, we know what's coming behind it, right? It, <laughs> those compliments are not free, right? It's like, what do you want? What do I have to do now, right? I, I've been a readiness officer. I've, I've done all kinds of crazy things, right? I'm just like, I don't know how to do that. Well, you're going to learn. Okay. You know, so we have been taught how to navigate that world, how to be savvy, how to be street smart, how to do all that. And when we get out and it's just us looking in the mirror, we're like, who's that? What's that? And I don't know what to do with that. So that self-care is foreign. It feels weird. We feel like we're doing something wrong by not focusing outward on other people. But as we all know, when our tank is empty, and in some cases, they can get real empty, then who the hell are you helping? Okay. Nobody. No, nobody. You're not helping anybody. So I like this whole idea with the this mental health, which is helping focus on transition, because like you just said, you don't know what you don't know. And I taught college for a couple of years, and I had students that were garden reservists, and they knew I was uh, prior military. I had separated for a short time and they knew I was prior military and they would come to me and they would talk and they'd be like, I'm struggling. And it wasn't with the schoolwork. It was with the environment and the mentality. You take a 19-year-old that, or a 21-year-old that's already been through two or three deployments and saw things that many people probably shouldn't even see in their life. And then you go stick them in a classroom with a, their peers that are like, yeah, what are you doing this weekend? And woo, and whatever else is going on. And yeah, I'll do y'all study, whatever. They don't know what to do with that. They, they have seen the worst of the worst. And now these guys in their minds are like, what are y'all doing? Some of them had good frames of mind saying, this is why I defended my country. So you could go have that, be there, express yourself, do whatever. But for others, they were just like, these guys are morons. <laughs> and I'd have to reframe that thought process, say, well, think about it. You know, they didn't have your life experiences. And if you hadn't had those life experiences, would you be who you are now? Mm. They're like, yeah, no. Right. Yeah, it's it's my traditional college years. You know, I had been around the world and back and then I was you know, flying the president of the United States. Yeah. And so when you, when you think it in that realm, it's like, you know, I had to grow up very quickly. Yes. Um, 
and uh, and and I think I think it, it has served me personally well now because I I have a better understanding of uh, you know like when I look at myself in the mirror and I brush my teeth or you know shave a little bit of my face you know you can't lie to that person you know and I think that's the that's the the misnomer in the military and. and and transitioning and you alluded to it the fact that you can get out of just about anything in the military if you know the right people or you know the right you know mm-hmm. um but you can't lie to yourself when you're when you're looking in the mirror mm-hmm. and whether that's good bad you know happy sad whatever the fact is if you can't be honest with yourself then you can't help yourself mm-hmm. so the the challenge is how do you be brutally honest with yourself and I, I mean brutally when I say brutally honest, because sometimes the person that you look in the mirror is not very nice and he's not very friendly and he's not very uh, compassionate to who's looking back at him and uh, or her. And it's it's that was the difficult part for me to understand, like, you know what? I am fucked up. Yeah. And I need I need to figure out just one small thing to make me smile or to make me feel like I'm going to be okay. And if you can do that and you can start to gain uh, momentum with small little victories, next thing you know, you, you are building momentum to the point where you're like, you know what? I actually can have a conversation with that person in the mirror and he gives it to me the way I need it. And I give it right back to him to the fact that, you know, I am super grateful, super thankful of that self-talk that allows me to grow, allows me to have the opportunity to be my best version of me or to live the highest quality of my life. Yeah, I think that's well said. And yeah, I want the audience to hear this because... Uh, there is a lot of uh, young military, you know, they're coming in. I, I still go to the base, you know, when I need to pick up prescriptions or do whatever. And it's funny, like I walk in and oh, it, it's just like deja vu. I see him. I see the second lieutenant sitting there, big eye, just coming in for training or or just leaving to go somewhere else. And I'll hear them like, yeah, it's my first base. And I'm like, damn the road ahead of them, right? Because we've already been down that road. And it's both like exciting and kind of scary. Like, what are you going to encounter? What's your story going to be? But, you know, the good part about it is that we have people like you and Caitlin and all these other resources around that are there saying, hey, we own a lot of those t-shirts and, uh, you know, you do your two years, four years, six years career, and when you're done, we're going to be over here to help you transition over so you don't have to experience what we did. You know, none of this starts, I think I said in the beginning of this before we started recording, is that none of these programs start from just some random good idea fairy. You know, there's an experience that happened that said, holy crap, we got to do this better something happened and you and I have completely different stories, but we actually come to the same thought process on that whole transition. 
And there is more and more people that are getting that, like learning self-care. And, you know, I chuckle when I hear like the eager young military person, like therapies for Nancy's or whatever. And I'm like, you keep saying that. <laughs> Talk to me in 10 years, you know. Um, yeah, and but we're here, right? We're trying really to build a net and we're trying to get those the, the weave tighter so we catch more and more of them. And the more we connect and the more people we meet and the more that we see people getting it done, um, it's just making better for the, the future generations. You know, we know they're coming. They, they never stop, you know, and, uh, you know, soon we'll be catching the, the guardians of the galaxy over there, the Space Force. <laughs> Yeah, I can't. I can't help it. I still giggle when we say guardians. So, we love you, though. They just uh, they just celebrate their four years or five years. Was it? Oh, I'm sure they get tons of crap. I mean, but it's all endearing. (laughs) Well, and the the thing is, you know, it's 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 the whole mentor process. Yes. And if we can, uh, if we can get the audience. Uh, to understand that there are mentors that have walked their shoes, walked in their shoes, or probably walked the same miles. Um, you know, every every individual and how they deal with things are different. However, the places that we've we've gone and done and seen and and you know, on and on and on, there's so many people that have done that already. So use us to not take so long. To figure this shit out that's 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 ultimately would be my message is there is old guys and gals that have done this for decades so don't take a decade to figure it out like we had to do take months take yeah. a couple weeks you know um because the more you thrust yourself into your own self-care the better your life is going to be for the longevity of of your walking days on this earth. Yes, because there, unfortunately, whether you want to believe it or not, there is life after the military, and and it's not too shabby if you can engage into it in a way that works the best for you. You know, and I just want to key on this is my last thought: mentoring, because that's a whole topic by itself. Mentoring does not have to be like the military tried to put it on all of us. Here's your mentor. I'm like, who's this person? It yeah. it does not. I can't really. I don't like the word in the sense that it connotates this formality. I like the thought of silent mentoring in the sense that I had many mentors and some of them didn't even know they were my mentors. I would just kind of like observe them and be like, God, they get a good response from this, what are they doing? And I would just watch and I would watch how they responded to things, whether it was like a tough situation and I would see how they'd respond. And I'm like, hmm, I'm going to try that. And so, you know, you try to mimic somebody and you try to give it and then you're like, oh, hey, that that kind of worked. Right. And guess what? You don't have to tell anybody about it. Right. You, you can just change. You can just do it differently. And then people may notice like, hey, 
they're not such a douche when, when this happens or, hey, yeah. you know, look at that. They, they're kind of pleasant to be around or, or they're getting more engaged or whatever it is, right? Um, so keep that in mind. You know, we say mentoring. You don't have to. I don't have to go up and go, Teddy, will you be my mentor? I mean, you don't do any of that. You find a trait that you find admirable and you mimic it and you try it. And you figure it out, you know? So, yeah, just keep that in mind. It doesn't have to be all formal. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that in the same sentence, you're going to find those folks that you're going to see, observe, and say, I don't want to do that at all. Oh, that, yeah. yes, absolutely. So I think that's the greatest part of, of all of this and all these resources that you have control now of your life moving forward that you can choose and pick pieces of what you, you like from certain people that you observe and you can identify things that you don't like by observation that, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put myself in that position. And, uh, you know, personally, I've been in counseling therapy for over a decade. Mm -hmm. I've been in Texas for four months and I'm on my fourth, uh, fourth therapist in Texas because it doesn't take me very long to say, you know what? You're not the guy. And, uh, you know, but that's, that's not a that's bad thing. That's not, not a bad thing. That's advocating. And a good therapist will also be like, hey, I totally understand. Here's somebody that might work for you, whatever it is, right? You can say no. You can. And people, that's another whole concept. And people are like, oh my God, I'm sure civilians think, what do you mean? You're in the military. You don't know how to say no. Yeah, we don't actually. We only know how to say yes. I didn't even realize that because it just didn't occur to me until I got into a situation that I was kind of annoyed by this person. And it was virtually too. And I noticed it was kind of causing me some stress. I mentioned it to a buddy of mine and he looked at me and he goes, you, you know, you can just not engage, right? And I, he's like, you can close the computer or shut down the Instagram or whatever it is. As silly as that sound, the damn thought didn't even occur to me. I didn't know up until about five years after I retired that I could fire doctors, uh, any any clinical staff or whatever, mm -hmm. any department, therapists, anything like that. I had no idea. I was just like, oh, man, you know, just hated going because you got nothing out of it. So finally, I had I had an old guy that says, if you don't like going, then just don't go. And I was like, well, what does that do? And he's like, no. He says, you don't go to that guy, and they'll give you somebody else. If you don't like that person, you go to somebody else. Yeah. Epiphany. <laughs> and again, there was, there was another big breakthrough in, in my, in my self-care, because then I, now, I was in control of, of who I allowed to, you know, be a part of my life. Yeah, and your stress level goes down, exactly. and your empowerment goes up, and yeah. And that's what we're all here to teach people. I mean, that sounds crazy when you say that, like, oh, like I can say no. Like, yeah, we can say no because we don't. We we don't have that option. So, so yeah, I think we could talk all day, Teddy. And and I know you and I will. We work in very similar circles. And Caitlin's already like, she just caught me the other day, like, hey, what do you think of this? And I was like, ooh, that's cool. And actually, threw her another resource. Said, look at this. And. You know, we were already commiserating and collaborating. And so I know that you and I will uh, definitely see each other 
um, in other circles. And I'll just say that, that Caitlin is a big part of, of my self-care the last couple of years because she has pushed me, uh, having not been in the military by any means, but she is such a huge advocate for military and first responders that she has pushed me to do things that I would have never done. And, uh, you know, so having her on your side, if you're transitioning or, or uh, on the team is, is a big bonus because she, uh, she gives she gives a shit when it comes to people and uh, and what they have to do and have to endure. So uh, sometimes, Caitlin, I gotta I gotta say this to the audience because Caitlin, if I had to describe her, she looks like a petite brunette cheerleader. She's as cute as a button. She is bright eyed. She is perky. She is sweet as they come. And this girl is a badass. She doesn't take any crap. She runs her own business. And she used to be a firefighter. And when she told me that, I'm like, you what? And she, like, I'm only 5'3", and she's a little shorter than I am. And she's like, oh, yeah, it's a firefighter for years. And I'm like, damn, I like you already. <laughs> Don't underestimate yeah, I'm, her. I'm, uh, some would say I'm out of my league, but uh, I, I put up a good fight. No, I think you guys are a good match. It's a good match. So, all right. Any last quick thoughts and we'll just wrap this up. I, I would just say, you know, I, I appreciate what you do. I appreciate the platform that you, uh, you do um, all these things to, to build awareness and, and for, for heroes outreach for us, um, we stand at the ready to help those in need. Um, and if we can't personally help, uh, we definitely have a, a pool of references and resources that, that can get help uh, as quickly as possible. So don't hesitate to call on us uh, should you need us. And uh, I, I just appreciate everything. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you. And so for the audience, if any of you guys are transitioning out of the military and you want to get better prepared, um, and it never hurts to have a little bit of counseling. And if it needs to be directed towards transition, that's what they'll do for you. They'll help you out there. Or in any sense of transition that you just need a little bit of, you know, redirection, help, mentoring, talk to them. You know, they've got resources. We're, we all work together and connected. So uh, don't be afraid. So, all right. I think that's everything because I think we could go on and on. We, we might have to go do a part two someday, Teddy. I think that's what's going to happen. Um and so from everybody here, uh, our parent podcast, Coming Home Well, and our podcast, Beyond the Front Line, we thank all of you. We always like that you take the time to listen to us, that we really hope you can share, like, comment, engage. We really love engagement. It helps direct us what we do for our podcast, um, and we want to bring value to you guys, which is all the veterans and all the veteran supporters and dependents. It's all here for you guys. So from all of us here at all of you, you guys have a great week. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Frontline, a podcast of coming home well. Join us every other Wednesday. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review.